didn't manage to write an introduction to this sermon, so I'll just tell you my first point. The centrality of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm struck by, as I read this passage and keep preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, the absolute centrality, the over and over repetition and emphasis on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Depending on how you count, this passage is the fourth or fifth time Jesus has given us distinct instructions about prayer in a three-chapter sermon. That's amazing. The first time Jesus mentioned prayer was in John chapter 5, verse 44, where he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Many people, not even necessarily Christians, will turn to prayer when they face enemies and opposition in their lives. But Jesus calls Christians to pray not only when they have enemies, but for their enemies. That's the first time he mentions prayer. Second time Jesus mentions prayer is he warns us against hypocrisy in prayer. He teaches us, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. The religious hypocrites of Jesus' day were the kind of people who would take a selfie of themselves when they were praying and put it on Instagram, and they prayed to put on a show so that other people would think they were holy and spiritual. Jesus tells his followers that they are not to pray so others will see them, but to God who sees them in secret. That's why he says, In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Third instruction, when it comes to Jesus speaking to us about prayer in one single sermon, is he tells us not to try to earn brownie points with God by sending up a bunch of empty words in his direction. He does not want us to think meaningless words sway God's heart. He says in Matthew 6, 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He reinforces the lesson we read in Ecclesiastes 5, 2. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The fourth time, he teaches us something distinct on prayer. It's the pinnacle of prayer teaching, perhaps in the whole Bible. He gives us the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew chapter chapter 6. We're to pray for God's name to be holy, his kingdom to advance, his will to be done, for our daily bread to be given, for us to be forgiven and to extend forgiveness, and then also for us to be not led into temptation but delivered from evil. If the Lord's Prayer was the only thing you had on the Sermon on the Mount on prayer, you would say the Sermon on the Mount emphasized prayer. But it's now the fourth thing we're seeing. 
when it comes to prayer. The fifth instruction on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is the one we're looking at this morning. And it's both a command and an encouragement. In the first verse of our passage, Jesus gives us a command. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. It's actually only half command and half promises. The commands are, of course, act, ask, and knock, and seek, and knock. And the promises infuse that verse, but then they dominate the next three. First in verse 8, sorry, yes, in verse 8, you get the first promise. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he follows up the promises with illustrations about the character of God, because that's really the issue when it comes to prayer. Who is God? Does he really want to hear me? Does he really want to answer my prayers? And so he tells us about the character of God in verse 9. Which, of, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, he's speaking to believers who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, get good things to those who ask him? Basic principle of biblical interpretation. You're reading your Bible, thinking, how do I read my Bible? How do I figure out what the Bible says? Basic principle is, if the person speaking keeps repeating the same thing, it's important. Pretty good principle if you've got parents, too. If someone keeps on about one topic, it's clearly important to their heart and to what they're trying to communicate. And here's Jesus, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times, instructing us about prayer. What do you make of that? What do we do with that? What are we to make of this repeated focus on prayer? I want to tell you three things, just so you don't get your hopes up. That's just the three things I want to tell you from the first point. <laughs> the first thing I would say is that it reminds us that God wants to walk through life with us in a father-child relationship. God wants to walk with you and me and us in a father-child relationship. He wants you to get together with him in secret, Matthew 6, 6. He wants to reward us for our obedient prayers, Matthew 6, 6. He wants to fellowship with us in our persecutions and sufferings. He wants us to teach us to love our enemies like our older brother Jesus. Matthew 5.44. He wants the reality that he's our father 
to be hallowed and revered and precious in our hearts at all times. He wants us to come to him continually and persistently, not because he's frustrating, but because he's fatherly. Uh, he wants the reality that he's our father to be something fruitful, not futile. He doesn't want us just mouthing off words as if we just had to keep up appearances. But he wants reality and substance and intimacy and communion and fellowship with every single one of his children. That's why he keeps going on and on and on and on about prayer. He wants us to have a, a disposition to think of him as generous. He wants us walking in communion with a generous father for whom it would be unthinkable for you to think, he's not going to give me a stone if I ask for a fish. He's not going to bite me with a snake if I ask him for some good thing. God wants a father-child relationship full of requests, trust, closeness, fruitfulness, and expectancy with every single Christian in the world. You, me. God wants to change many of our views of him as father. Some of you have relationships with your father that are so twisted, so demented, so perverse, that it fills your mind with the most despairing, even suicidal thoughts. God wants to replace that reality with a walk with him, the true and good father. He will still put hard things in your life. He's a father. But when he calls you into hard things like loving enemies, it will be with a lot of comfort, encouragement, support, provision, gifts, and expectancy that he'll answer you in the midst of those difficulties. Some of you here have had good dads, but God wants your relationship with him to be better than that. They gave you good gifts, they help your heart to trust and to expect more good things, but he brings better things. He's more available, more powerful, more capable, and more gracious than the best earthly fathers. Most of us have had dads who get mixed reviews. James Montgomery Boyce, the great preacher of 10th Presbyterian Church who died in 2000, said he had a dad who was a lavish provider and a man of integrity. And Boyce said he never can remember once having a meaningful conversation with his dad. That's a blessing, and it's a grief. Boyce's dad, like all of our fathers, only points imperfectly to God the Father. But look what your imperfect father points to. It's your heavenly father, ready to help you love your enemies, fellowship with him alone, uh, ready to have a real relationship with you instead of empty words that feel surfacy, ready to put awe in your heart for a father that you don't just respect, but you revere, and a constant engagement in working with him 
not being distant from him, not being shut out of his woodshop, but working with him, advancing his kingdom, and getting things done hand in hand with God the Father. He wants to keep up fellowship with you, and he wants to make sure nothing will hinder that fellowship. That's why he says to pray for the forgiveness of your sins, because every time that fellowship gets broken, he wants it restored. And that's why he has you pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because he doesn't want you falling into sin that might break that fellowship with him. At every step of the way, Jesus is after prayer, not as an end in itself, but because he wants to have a father-child relationship with every single one of his believers. And if this just feels unreal to you, or isn't sinking into the deepest parts of your soul as the sweetest truth you've ever heard, we need to be calling out to God for these things to be brought home to us because this is the burden of Christ, that he have a people constantly talking to the Father. He came to die to reconcile us to the Father. He is more than aware of how twisted and demented our ideas of fatherhood are. He's more than aware of how awful we are as sons and daughters. And that's exactly who he wants to restore a father-child relationship with. The second thing we can notice from the continual teaching on prayer, we're just bringing out simple points on a simple observation, Jesus just keeps talking about prayer. And the second thing we can notice from Jesus' constant and continual emphasis on prayer is that we are not naturally good at it. Why would we need so much teaching? Why can't he just say one thing and move on? Because you, my friend, are bad at prayer. This is one of those moments, sometimes people come up to me after the sermon and they're like, how do you know me, preacher? I'm like, I don't. I know my Bible. It knows you. If, if you are naturally good at prayer, honestly, I'd have questions. I wonder if you're really dealing with the kind of prayer the New Testament's talking about. Because the average believer is in need of constant coaching, coaxing, correction, and leadership on prayer. And so if you're just like, I'm just always needing this thing refined, always needing to be encouraged, always needing to be sharpened in the area of prayer, here's what that makes you. It's a kind of encouraging. It makes you a normal Christian. We pray for the wrong things. We pray about our enemies, not for our enemies. We pray in the wrong way, rambling on in emptiness as if God was a genie who would answer us if we rub the lamp enough times. We uh, put the wrong things, we get the, the priorities wrong. We would have, give us this day our daily bread first, hallowed be thy name could come along a little later. Think about your prayer life. What gets first billing? Is it stuff or God's name? Is it circumstances or God's character? There are reasons you can fill stadiums if you just pe teach people to pray for stuff. Churches where they are first and foremost praying for holiness and the kingdom and the advance of God's mission 
have a harder time filling small buildings. We tend to ask. Here's another way we go wrong in prayer. But then we don't seek and knock. We ask. Nothing happens. We give up. We lose heart. And we tend to pray to God as if he were stingy and not generous, as if he were a cosmic killjoy instead of the author of fullness of joy. So, all of this teaching from Jesus, one pass, two pass, three passes, four passes, five passes, just continually coming at us to talk about prayer, it's an act of love, isn't it? It's one more way of Jesus showing us the truth of Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust. I, I did a little study on dust this week. It's very encouraging. I, I, I was dust. I will be dust. And God never forgets it. We think of ourselves as so grown up and big and tall and we need to be all strong and capable. He knows where you came from. The origins are not pretty. They're the kind of thing you'd put in a dustbin, throw in the trash without a second thought. He makes you out of that, and to dust you will return. Right now, you are currently dust animated by the power of God, who's been given a living soul. And he knows that, which is why the teaching is so repetitive, so continual, so basic. It's why when you see all your weaknesses and you get discouraged by them, God's not shocked. God's not sitting there going, man, I would have expected better from dust. No, he knows that anything good in you will be formed by him. And so he's there the whole time, like a father, bringing you along, teaching you how to walk with him. If you're bad at prayer, take heart. Our father has raised children like you and me before. The third thing we need to notice from all this prayer teaching, and again, what are we doing? We're just making the most simple observation. Jesus teaches on prayer, then he teaches on prayer again, then he teaches on prayer again, then he teaches on prayer again, then he teaches on prayer again. What does that mean? The third thing we notice from all this prayer teaching is that we really need the power of God. The reason there's so much teaching on prayer is because we really can't do anything alone. We really can't accomplish anything of any worth alone. The whole Christian life really needs God's help. Why is Jesus telling us again and again and again to pray? Here's the clear reason. We need him. Without him, we don't love enemies. We don't go after life prayer for God's rewards. We do not uh, forgive. Our hearts don't naturally wake up in the morning hallowing his name. None of this happens naturally. None of this happens without a continual and constant emphasis on prayer. If we pray very little, then I can tell you that your obedience is little. Your fellowship is little. Your joy is little. How could it be otherwise? 
Have you found a way to live like Christ without fellowship with the Father? Answer that question. Have you found a way to keep your soul filled with worship and praise without prayer? Have you found a way to do it alone? How can it be? It's impossible. The Christian life cannot be lived, not in the power of the Spirit at least, without the power of God. And the power of God comes to us through prayer. We say, I should pray. I should pray. I should really pray. I should really pray. As if things were going pretty well, but if we prayed, that would be the icing on the cake. Oh, that's self-deception. If we are prayerless, we are powerless. If we're prayerless, then whatever is fueling us isn't God. Show me a prayerless soul, and I'll show you a soul struggling to love their enemies, struggling to pray to, who struggles with praying to impress others, who think they need to earn credit with God, who are unmoved by God's holiness. How could it be otherwise? There's no way to become godly without explicitly calling on God. So Jesus coaches and coaches and instructs and corrects and commands and encourages us. He's just in our face all the time, just keeping this up. I'm going to teach you how to pray. I am going to teach you how to rely on me. I am going to make sure that everything good in you comes from me and you know it. And he's not frustrated. He's not exasperated. He's not surprised that this is what it takes. He's just continually speaking to his people about prayer. So that's the centrality of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. It shows us we are bad at prayer by nature. We're powerless without prayer. But God the Father wants to cultivate a praying relationship between his children and himself. Why don't we pray before we go on? Lord, would you please help us? We are just surrounded by distractions. Our minds are filled with distortions of your character. Would you please, Lord, bring us into the greatest blessing of this earthly life to commune and fellowship and walk and talk with you and to see you work in answer to our request. Lord, we pray that you would grow this in us each individually and as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We saw the centrality of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Now I want you to see the context of the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The context of the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. What do I mean by the context of prayer? I mean this, when we look at a verse like this one all alone, like if you just sort of take uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 11, out of your Bible, stick it on a fortune cookie, find it alone and trembling on the street. You know, there it is by itself. And here's this verse, ask and you will receive, uh, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened up to you. If you just found that verse alone, that is the kind of verse that will make a health and a wealth preacher's mouth water. Like this is a golden passage. This is amazing. This is the kind of thing I can do whatever I want with. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be answered. Just name it, claim it, ask and it will be yours. That's what the verse says. 
We want to deal with what the verse says, right? But what happens when we connect the promise to the sermon it was originally preached in? How does that change how we view this verse to notice where it actually came from? Have you ever had your words? Maybe you haven't had this joy. I hope you have. It's one of the joys of public speaking. Have you ever had your words taken completely out of context? Yeah, good. Not everyone should share that joy at least once in their life or more times. You know, you say something and then someone repeats the very words you said. I mean, word for word, they got it. They, they understood you. But it was like, are we on the same planet? How could you reflect me like that with my very words? And that happens to these verses all the time. These words, which Jesus spoke, get ripped out of their context and divorced from a sermon that really comes to us as a package. Okay, so what would happen if we put the verses back in the context? What kinds of things would we be asking and seeking and knocking for? Well, let's try a few contexts. Look at verse 12. The passage right after ours, very connected to ours by the word, so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for that is the law and the prophets. Now, I'm going to tell you something about me. I got a, a number of things I would like others to do for me. I actually have fairly high expectations of what I would like to see others do for me. I want to be loved, serious business. I, I want to be understood. I want to be given the benefit of the doubt when I'm unclear, and I'm unclear a fair bit. I want to be treated gently. I want to be taken seriously. I want to be helped when I'm down. I want to be helped just because. I want to be loved quite a bit. And this is how I'm to love other people. I have no trouble thinking of all the ways I would like to be loved. It's not hard. But the calling on my life, according to all the law and the prophets, is to give that kind of attention to other people. So they're feeling understood, loved, cared for, cherished, warm, given the benefit of the doubt, all the time with the same fervency I want it. I got something to pray about now. To ask, to seek, to knock on God's door for. The Sermon on the Mount does not go on and on about home decor and restful vacations and the best restaurants and the most prosperous retirement counts and the most successful accomplishments in your career and then say, ask and seek and knock and it will be given to you. Now there's nothing wrong with success in a career and there's nothing wrong with a vacation. But let's get the context right. Let's notice what the emphasis is. Let's let the Lord himself decide what the burden of the prayer ought to be. And what he's been talking about is enduring persecution, having an absolutely lust-free heart, not hating your brother or your sister or your mother or your father. 
He's been talking about staying married in virtually every difficult circumstance. He's been talking about blessing people who hate you. He's been talking about not doing your religion so other people notice you. He's been talking about giving so lavishly it makes you struggle with anxiety. And then quelling that anxiety with his constant care over you. And then, on top of that, he's been telling us that if we do not do these things, and this is the emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount, I know justification by faith, you know justification by faith, I know salvation by grace alone, not by works, you know salvation by grace alone, not by works, but listen to the Sermon on the Mount, listen to it, it says these things must be done or you will not go to heaven, it's as clear as day, those who are saved by grace will walk in this kind of obedience, they will grow into it or they will not go to heaven, it is the clear message of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the passage. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. Jesus only. Trust in Him. Discipleship through Him. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. If you find the Christian life pinching and hard, you found the Christian life. It's, it's narrow, and it's hard. And those who find it are few. There have always been few people who are saved. The way has always been narrow. The way has always been difficult. The path has always been hard. And if you do not go through that way, you are not going to salvation. You are on a broad road that leads to destruction. And the asking and the seeking and the knocking is that you would be on that one way. The asking and the seeking and the knocking would be, Lord, make me a person who doesn't grow bitter from my enemies but loves them. Lord, make me a person who's not entranced by the porn culture all around me but that has a settled purity of heart. Lord, make me a person who hallows your name above my own agenda or I will not be saved saved. This is what we have to ask for. This is what we're seeking. This is what we're knocking on God's door for. Yes, we ask for our daily bread, but let's, let's put it in context. We got one verse on material needs. And we've got a plethora of verses on the transformation of our souls from me-centered to God-centered, from sinful to righteous. This must happen in every soul that will be saved. No exceptions. Doesn't matter that you went to a healthy church. Doesn't matter that you heard gospel-centered preaching. It doesn't matter. They'll be like shrags when you show up at the judgment seat of God. There will need to be a trusted in Christ's righteousness alone, and the Spirit transformed me. So I began to walk like Christ. I was not on a broad road of self-deception leading to destruction. I was on a narrow path, Lord, and it was painful. Now wipe away all my tears and say to me, enter into the joy of your master. That's what we're aiming for. And the asking and the seeking and the knocking, it comes out of that vision of life, that vision of eternity. That's the context of this prayer. 
If you consider that's the sermon and put the prayer in its context, it will shape the, the, the focus of your prayers. What do I need to pray about? I need to pray about my holiness. I need to pray about my obedience. I need to pray about other people's holiness, other people's obedience. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. I need to be aware of false teaching. I need to ask and seek and knock until God gives me the good gifts of faith and love and obedience. Oh, I can pray for food and a vacation, but that's hardly the main focus. It's important, but not the whole story. If we read this passage in context, we will pray for eyes to see the blessed of the poor in spirit, even when it doesn't feel blessed at all to be poor in spirit. Do you see what the context will do? It will shape the content of your prayers, but it will also shape the intensity of your prayers. I mean, when you, when you read, listen to these verses, listen to these verses. Listen to the last, second to last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry, the third to last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21 of chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Power came from our fingertips. And Jesus says to them, and then I will declare to them, I never do you, depart from me, Notice the characteristics. You workers of lawlessness. They did not come under the law of Christ so they can be as miraculous as they want. They're workers of lawlessness. And what does all that do to your prayer? I could be someone who says, Lord, Lord, and not be saved. Ask, seek, knock. It will be granted to you. Ask him for holiness. Seek him for holiness. Knock on the door for holiness. He will give it to you. How do I pursue sanctification by grace? He says, ask for it. You'll get it. He says, you want to be changed? Pursue him. Seek him. Knock. He will give it to you. You think, I can't walk that hard road. Yes, you can. He can walk it in you. That's the whole point here. This is a gift of grace. You pursue him and he will do these things in your heart. Our Kent Hughes helps us get very practical here. Now listen to these words. Get very practical here. If you are a believer, but are short on Christian graces, you need to keep praying. If you often find yourself lying, if you will begin to ask and seek and knock, God will help you become a truth teller. God will help you if you are not generous, make a habit of passionate prayer and he will give you a generous spirit. If you are not kind, but persistently seek God for a kind spirit, he will give it to you. So take a minute here. Put your finger on something. What's a characteristic that could drag you down? That could pull you into the broad road? Bitterness? Anger, 
lust, covetousness, envy, grumbling, complaining, deceit, lies. Put your finger on it. You need to ask God about it. You need to seek God about it. You need to knock on God's door. He will answer you. He will not leave you to go off onto a broad road. He will minister to you. He will help you. He will keep you tracking all the way to heaven. And just because it comes to my mind, Pastor Evan reminding us last week of suffering, producing proven character. When you see how essential it is that we grow from grace into obedience, suffering really does become a gift. Difficult gift, no joke but it actually does produce in us what must be produced if we would be saved. Last point. The encouragements from this glorious prayer. Encouragements from this glorious prayer. We saw the centrality of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Then we saw the context of this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, now the encouragements from this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse eight, everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open to him. Notice that. Not the perfect who seek and knock and ask, not the priest who seeks and knocks and asks, not the pastor who seeks and knocks and asks, everyone. Any Christian in need from God, who asks and seeks and knocks, will receive. It's a promise for every single Christian. Now, whenever you preach a promise like this, you have to deal a little bit with unanswered prayer. What do I do with unanswered prayer? How do I deal with that? Well, I'll give you three quick things. First thing I would say to you is, uh, think about my last point. Most of our unanswered prayers are in areas where we're praying for the circumstances of our life to change and not for some specific command in the New Testament. So most of our unanswered prayers are, I want a different financial situation, I want a different spouse situation, I want a different uh, health situation. Not wrong to pray about, but we don't have specific promises. Everyone will be healthy, everyone will be wealthy, everyone will have a spouse. And so we fixate on those things, and when those things don't happen, God, we have a problem with unanswered prayer. What if you were to reverse the percentages of your prayer life? If your prayer life is like 80% on circumstances and 20% on the specific verses and revealed will of God, then that's 80% of your prayer life that has the chance of being unanswered because you're maybe not praying something God actually wants for you. If you flip that, and now you're praying 80%, Lord, make me holy. Make me care about your kingdom. Lord, make me, make me someone who doesn't lust. Make me someone who loves even my enemies. And about 20% on, Lord, I'd like to change the circumstances. I, I, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to find your percentage of unanswered prayers go way down. He loves to answer those things which he has concretely promised to every single believer. Another issue when it comes to unanswered prayer is that sometimes we, 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 we call unanswered prayer by the wrong name. 
We call something an unanswered prayer, but we should just call it unanswered yet. The asking, seeking, knocking command implies something, doesn't it? It implies what we see through the whole Bible. He generally doesn't ask, answer quickly. Did you hear me? There are times in the Bible where Acts chapter 4, Lord, stretch out your hands and do miracles. Boom, he does them. That's times for that. We've all had those moments. Lord, I prayed that you'd do this. 30 minutes later, the text comes in, whatever, God moves immediately. But most of our prayer requests are answered after a long time, after a so long time, or to put it in the language of the songs, after a how long amount of time. And so instead of labeling certain things unanswered prayers, they should be in the unanswered prayers yet category, and we should keep on praying. The third thing I would say about unanswered prayer is this. The fact are, when we're dealing with circumstantial issues that aren't the specific revealed will of God, we always have to concede that we might not have all wisdom in what we're praying for. And it might be a mercy that God's not answering our prayer. Howard Hendricks, the famous Bible teacher, was apparently, I don't know how he told this story, but he was apparently quite an eligible bachelor. And one woman, an older woman, would actually came up to him and tell him, I'm praying that I would be your mother-in-law. And he says he was very happy that God did not answer her prayer. Aren't you glad God has not answered all the prayers of those people you know? And if you can see the wisdom in him not answering their prayers, maybe you could concede the wisdom in him not answering a few of yours or answering them with a no. Having made all these explanations, let's not miss the point. As we seek God's righteousness and God's kingdom and God's holiness and obedience, we can ask and seek and knock and God will surely and continually answer our prayers. You will grow in grace, assuredly. And notice how much he wants to encourage you in this. He encourages you by, by reminding you of the Father's character. This is the biggest problem in prayer. Right back to the garden, the devil wants us to think of God as stingy. Has God really said? Is he holding out on you, an apple of death? Rather, the Father has always been generous. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, pardon me, will give him a stone? Or if we ask for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Last night I had the joy of having my whole family around the dining room table, my mom, all my kids, son-in-law, grandbaby on the way, it was good times. And my daughter started a conversation about who wanted what for Christmas. And you just love that as a dad, just to watch that and all the kids are telling the things they wanna have and what they wanna get. And you're just thinking, I just, I'd, I'd like to give it all to them. I can't, but I'd love to just give them whatever it was they're wanting. Or I'd love to figure out ways we can get things together 
to give them whatever desires they have. I know there's a few twisted dads in the world who haven't had that heart, but don't let them dominate your thoughts. Look at the dads around this room. There's plenty of dads in this room who if they wanted to, they would just give their kids whatever would be for their benefit. But our Heavenly Father can afford anything. He has no limits to what He can give. And if, if earthly fathers are thinking in November about what to get their kids, or they're at least you know, encouraging their wives to start thinking about what their kids are gonna get uh, in December, How much more will your heavenly father be eager to give gifts to you? Now, what are these good gifts that our father wants to give us? There's an amazing parallel in the gospel of Luke. Um, If you want any insight into itinerant preaching, read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, and it's interesting because it's like he's saying the same thing, but he's kind of mixing up the illustrations, and I feel that way whenever I preach the same sermon at a different church. It's, it's the same sermon, but the words change a little bit, and you'll notice this between the Gospels. Sometimes you'll read the same sermon, the same ideas, but it's clear that Jesus would bring up the same things, but sometimes he'd use a snake in his illustration. Sometimes he'd use a scorpion in his il- illustration. Why? Because he was a normal human being. He, he was human. He wasn't a normal human being, but he was a human being. And uh, anyway, in the Gospel of Luke, there's just a slight tweak on this promise, and it's, it's pretty insightful. It helps us. So in Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 13, it says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So which is it? Does He give good gifts to those who ask Him, or does He give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, I actually think this lines up perfectly with what we've been seeing. He gives the Holy Spirit, and the kind of good gifts we're focusing on are all the things the Holy Spirit creates in our lives. He gives the Holy Spirit, and then all the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the Holy Spirit creates. He gives the spirit of wisdom and revelation the Holy Spirit gives. He gives the kind of character the Holy Spirit creates in our lives. So let me close by saying these three things. Continue in private prayer with joy. I know that when you get alone in your prayer closet, and the only way to make the prayer closet alone is if the phone doesn't come with you, because that thing is going to beep and tingle and buzz. It'll beep and tingle and buzz even if you don't take it with you. At least that's my experience. I keep having those shadow tingles. You get yourself alone, and you trust that there's a heavenly Father on the other end of the line who wants to do good to you. Do not lose heart in private prayer. Emmanuel, we gather in prayer gatherings every week. Every week those prayer gatherings pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for the unreached to be reached, for the ministry of this church to prosper. 
And those prayer gatherings are there because we see the example of the early church being devoted to prayer. Because a church that's devoted to prayer is delighted with answered prayer. And I want to encourage you, not only are your prayers being answered as you continue to pray, but greater things will come as we keep asking and seeking and knocking. It doesn't matter if it's a dry Sunday. Sometimes knocking is dry. It's what comes at the end of asking and seeking and knocking. And then lastly, I just ask you to join me through the remainder of this year and through 2024 in praying regularly for these burdens I mentioned in the State of the Church address a couple of members meetings ago. I believe that we need to grow in evangelism, hospitality, discipleship, and the power of the Spirit on our life of our church. I think those things would just mightily help, well, they're obedient, and they would mightily help our community. Would you ask and seek and knock on God's door together with me for those wonderful and explicitly commanded elements of the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask and seek and knock that this word would go deep in us, that it would change us, that it would trans transform us, that those who've been avoiding prayer would re renew a commitment to prayer, that those who've been discouraged in prayer would be re-encouraged in prayer, that those who've been persevering in prayer would press on in prayer. And Lord, we do not pray as an end in itself. We want to see you move and work and act and do. We pray you do this to your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.